Be the right club. Be the right club today. Yes! Okay, welcome to episode four of uh, the Be The Right Club Today podcast. Hal, how are you doing? I'm good, Jamie. Good. Looking forward to talking today. Yeah, good. We have our, our guest joining us in-house today, which is great, which is rare for us. Normally we're on the Zoom, but we have Doug Wright, uh, Vice President of Strategic Planning at Heritage Links. Welcome, Doug. Thanks for having me. How are you doing today? Doing well. Good to be here. Great. Well, Doug, great to have you on. So can you just uh, introduce yourself to our audience? Sure. My name is uh, Doug Wright. Um, I work for Heritage Links. We're a golf course construction company. We're based right here in Houston. Our, uh, our home office is just down the road, uh, right across from Champions on 1960. Um, I've been working for Heritage for, uh, for 10 years now. Um, love what I do and uh, glad to be here and kind of share some insight on the construction world. No, that's brilliant. I know how you talked a lot about this season, uh, bringing all parts of the game together for golfers to play better and not just you know golf swing. So, uh, yeah, what kind of questions you got for Doug today? Well, first of all, I, you know, we started out this year and I said, you know, we're going to make it a whole. We're not going to just talk about golf swing. We're going to talk about all of golf. Last week we had Andy Johnson on from the Fried Egg who talks a lot about architecture. And Doug knows a lot about architecture. He also knows a lot about the construction process of building a golf course. So, uh, you know, he drew the plans for Darmore, where we're actually working right now, and he's co-designing with me, and uh, and Heritage Links is building it. So it's it's uh, we're having fun out there. So, how many projects do y'all have currently going right now, Doug? Uh, active projects. Uh, I think we have about fifteen or sixteen going on right now. Um, last summer, kind of at our peak busy season, we had probably. 25 or more going on so things always generally slow down a little bit during the winter and then they they pick back up in the spring and summertime so international how many projects going internationally right now we don't have any right now um we just finished up uh our involvement in a project in saudi arabia um we were uh, project managing the new greg norman course um outside of Riyadh. um Honestly, we're so busy domestically, it really hasn't made sense to chase a lot of international work. Um, as you can imagine, it's just more challenging with the travel and schedules, and um, we don't really self-perform work overseas. It's more of kind of just providing our expertise. Um, but the domestic market is so strong that we just we've been focused so heavily on on work here in the U.S. that we we haven't really even needed to to chase work overseas. Greg Norman, Saudi Arabia, that's a hot topic right there. But anyway, <laughs> uh, we won't get into that. Uh, how many uh, whole golf courses are you doing right now, and how many uh, restoration projects? So we've got uh, we got four four new construction projects going on, including our project. Um, we're working in South Florida on a 27-hole project uh, with Jack Nicholas and Justin Thomas called Panther National, uh, which is kind of an interesting collaboration. Yeah. Uh, we're doing 36 holes in Georgia with 
the uh, Australian design group, OCM, Jeff Ogilvie's company. Uh, we've got a new 18-hole golf course in Nashville with Gil Hance, and then we have yours. Um, so aside from those four new construction projects, we've got maybe a handful of, I would say, medium to large size renovation projects, and then a handful of kind of irrigation only projects. Um, we're working at Dallas Country Club right now. We're working at uh, Olympic Club um, doing just the irrigation. There's another contractor doing the golf course work. Um, we'll be doing Colonial Country Club uh, later this year after the tournament's done. Um, so it's really kind of a, a mixture of new construction, medium to large size renovations, irrigation only, you know, the random kind of bunker or greens renovation projects scattered in there as well. So um, let's talk cost. I think everybody out there would like to know a lot about how much things cost, uh, how much it changed over the last 20 years. And yeah. I'm going to let you dive into that. Yeah, it's um, a lot's changed even just in the last year. Um, I mean, let alone five or 10 or 20 years ago. Um, I mean, I would just as kind of a, a baseline, you know, currently for a, a, a new 18 hole golf course, you know, average size features, um, you're probably looking in the eight to $12 million range, not including a whole lot of bells and whistles. I mean, if you start getting into sand capping and solid sodding and bridges and landscaping i mean it's really easy to see you know construction costs inflate to 20 25 30 million dollars um, but if you use 10 million dollars kind of as like a baseline for current costs you know five years ago it was probably more in the like six to seven million dollar range 10 years ago is probably more in the four to five million dollar range and you know, 20 or 25 years ago, it wasn't uncommon to build golf courses for two or $3 million. So irrigation alone, let's just talk about that because that's gone up significantly over the last 15 years. We were just talking about that before we came on about the difference. So 20 years ago, irrigation was? It was, it was not uncommon to install an irrigation system for less than a million dollars. Um, you know, we were actually just talking about this. I think the last, the last project where the irrigation system was less than a million dollars, I think, was a project that we did in, in Mississippi. It was right at like nine hundred sixty grand or something, and it was it was minimal. It wasn't a really comprehensive system, um, but those days are unheard of. I mean, long gone. Um, I would say an average eighteen hole irrigation system probably costs in the range of three and a half to four million dollars and it's not difficult to get into the four and a half five or even more than that um, it's 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 astronomical and a lot of the pricing obviously is tied to you know the components that go into it pretty much everything that you use in irrigation is a derivative of you know oil and gas whether it's plastic or rubber um, and we all know what's going on with oil and gas prices the last year or two. So that's really driven prices. What do you think, uh, so despite the prices being really high, we're experiencing a bit of a golf boom right now, would you say? Why do you think that golf boom is still happening despite the 
it becoming so much uh, more expensive to build? I think that um, it's a combination of things. I think the the projects that we see going on right now, there's kind of a common trend. They tend to either be um, wealthy individuals who are unaffected by typical, you know, market fluctuations. Um, they're private clubs that are well endowed, that have memberships that are committed. Um, you don't see a lot of work in kind of the municipal sphere, the, you know, the public golf courses, you know, the, the lower, you see a lot of work still kind of at like upscale public, but you don't see a lot at the kind of medium or, or lower grade ones. Um, but I think there's still, there's still a market for them geographically, depending on where you are. The, there was kind of like a course correction the last couple years. As we all know, what happened during the 90s and the early 2000s with the golf boom. There was just a bunch of golf courses that were built in areas that they should have never been built. Mm -hmm. Those courses have started to close. So those markets have kind of corrected themselves. And there's a lot of areas now that, I mean, the population is still expanding into new places. And so there's a population that's demanding golf. Um, so that combined with, you know, kind of these wealthier, you know, individuals or companies that are willing to go out and build courses in kind of these far off places. And maybe they don't really even care if they ever see a return on their investment, but that's what's driving our business. Mm -hmm. And there's a lot of renovation work, you know, everything on a golf course has a lifespan, whether it's the irrigation system, the greens, the bunkers. Um, so everything's got to be replaced at some point. Mm -hmm. So uh, let's let's design a golf course here in front of everybody right now. So 15 years ago, uh, when I did Boot Ranch, you know, the back tee, 265 yards was kind of the carry yardage that we used. What's the carry yardage today? <laughs> yeah, we we usually, you know, we look at it from kind of like back tee to turning point, right. you know. So it wasn't uncommon, you know, 20 years ago, you might use like 250 yards as your measuring stick from, okay, you're going to have a back tee, and then your first turning point is going to be 250 yards from from that, that tee. Then it kind of grew to like 275 yards. Now we're seeing a lot of designs where the architects are using 300 yards as a basis for what the distance is from the back tee to the turning point. And then the other tees, they kind of design around that depending on the skill level. But Is, is that an uh, equipment thing, you think, that's causing this distance? Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, yeah it's, it's an equipment thing. You know, the guys that hit it far already are hitting even farther today. Yeah. Um, so it's... I think it's just a, a, a way of keeping up with the Joneses. Well, we used 250 as a turning point at Big Ranch, and then, you know, anything that was a carry of 265, you know, we knew that was pretty much out of reach for most people at that point. And that's kind of where fairway bunkers and things like that were placed. But, you know, things have changed. And, uh, you know, we can get into this, but I'd be curious what you think, Doug. But, I mean, I've been a proponent of, putting more spin back on the ball and uh, the game is more exciting when the ball is spinning more you know it's curving more the wind affects it more 
you know, I'm a, I happen to believe that golf is art. It's not science. You know, we're, we're doing our best to make it science, but I still think it's a great deal of art. And, you know, in a minute we'll get into Darmour where we're designing out there. And, you know, I really want to make it an artistic game out there. You know, we're using the templates, and, and uh, I really think that uh, a lot of slope, not severe slope, but constantly ball a little bit below your feet, ball a little bit above your feet, a little bit of a downhill lie. You know, one degree slopes in the fairway make a big difference on the loft of a club. And, uh, I mean, what are your thoughts on all that, Doug? Yeah, I mean, I was um – I, I consider myself a, a, a good, a decent golfer. Um, I was never blessed with a ton of yardage, um, but I generally did have the ability to play the ball both ways. You know, I always liked hitting shots left to right and right to left, so I like being able to spin the ball. Yeah. Um, and, I mean, it, it is it is kind of remarkable what's, what's happened at the, you know, upper level of the game with professionals especially though you look at how they prepare golf courses these days and you know the pga tour they're constantly going back to their courses and adding tees or pushing bunkers up in fairways to the point that it's almost it's insane i mean they're using you know 320 or 330 yards as kind of a placement for a bunker off the tee because that's they have to do that in order to keep the pros in check um, I think at some at some point something's got to give. I don't think that's sustainable. You know, whether it's rolling back the ball or something happening on the equipment side, at at some point something's something's got to give. To me, honestly, I don't even. I mean, every, I think everybody loves to hit the long ball, but I I like I don't I don't love just bombing it. Yeah. You know, mm-hmm. hole after hole. Mm-hmm. You know, I like golf courses that make you think you know, off the tee box and present strategy and, you know, you get on the tee and, you know, it's not just instantly grabbing for the driver, you know, mm-hmm. maybe it's a fire, a, you know, five wood or a utility club or an iron or something. And you got to think about where am I going to position this in the fairway to give me the best opportunity on the next shot. It's not just instantly grabbing for the big stick and, and hitting it as far as you can. For our, uh, you know, listeners, um, when they're playing golf courses, uh, what kind of things can they look for, or what kind of things will architects do to get in a golfer's head when they're on the tee? I think a lot of it has to do with, I mean, initially to get in people's head, a lot of it just has to do with presentation of the golf hole. You know, what is the aesthetics of the hole? Because those don't always necessarily lend themselves, you know, one-to-one to what how difficult a hole is. But there's certain things that you can do to present a hole that makes it look harder or makes it more, makes it look you know, easier than, than what it really is in terms of, you know, the width of the hole, the placement of the bunkers, you know, how far the bunkers are off of the tee, um, kind of the layering of landforms and the fairways. Um, you know, you could create a bunker complex right off the tee that, you know, makes it appear as if it's just, you know, in going all the way across the fairway or something. And in reality, it might be, you know, two or three or four bunkers that are just spaced in such a way that it gives that appearance, but really there's a lot more room out mm-hmm. there than, than, than it looks. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think that's kind of the initial, you know, presentation of a golf hole that, that makes people think, I mean, obviously if you've never played the hole before, that's really all you're going off of unless mm-hmm. you've got, you know, a caddy or a yardage book or something that 
will give you details. Gives you details on it, but um, a lot of it just has to do with aesthetics and how the whole is presented. Mm-hmm. For you, how was there uh, architects or courses that always just didn't suit your eye or any kind of look that you didn't like? Well, you know, I've, the left side of the golf course gave me a hard time. That's what I was trying to always guard against. Uh, uh, so things that didn't set up, I mean, I'll be honest, like 18 at TPC bothered me a little bit. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I played a three-wood. I mean, the year I beat Tiger, I played three-wood off the tee the first three days and played it down the right-hand side. That was a smart play for Hal Sutton. You know, mm-hmm. I left me with a little bit longer shot into the green. But, you know, I, I approached that hole like par was golden. Mm-hmm. And I would give everybody some advice out there. When you get to a hole that's really, really hard, are you still trying to make birdie? Or have you surrendered and said, okay, par is golden here, and that's all I'm really trying to do. So what do I need to do in order to make that par? Now, when I got to 18 against Tiger, I needed the last shot in, and I knew the only club in my bag that I could hit past his Stinger 2-iron was my driver. I knew I couldn't hit my 3-wood past his Stinger 2-iron. So, you know, he hit it because he had Eagle 16. He hit it off the tee first, and he cured it right down the center. So, okay, driver it is. Here we go. (laughs) And, you know, and I was driving it good that week, so I really wasn't as fearful of, Uh, You know, I had a plan. I knew what I had to do. This episode is brought to you by Holderness and Borden. Let's talk about their polo shirts for a second. The fit and fabrics are one of my favorites out there, but Holderness and Borden really changed the game with the collar on their shirts. You can really spot a Holderness and Borden collar. It has premium interfacing, sewn-in collar stays, and an English cut that is modern but not too aggressive. Ultimately, what does that all mean? It means you look more polished and more put together, a great collar can frame your face and give you great posture. A great collar also stays sharp, especially in the heat of the summer as you sweat, or maybe you're sweating over those nervy six-footers. Check them out at hbgolf.com and use code HAL15 for 15% off your next order. That's hbgolf.com. Let's get back to building a golf course here for a second. What's the hardest part to you when you're building a golf course? Heritage Links is building a golf course. Uh, what do you find to be the most difficult part? Uh, I would say probably two things. I think the first one is managing the people, <laughs> yeah. um, matching personalities and all of the different team members. And you've got architects and owners and golf course shapers and your project manager, your superintendent. You've got to marry all those personalities and there's got to be good communication or, or it doesn't work. Um, you know, the second challenging aspect is is kind of the things that you can't control. Things like Mother Nature, um, maybe there's another contractor that's working alongside you that delays the project. Um, the work itself, moving dirt, putting drainage in the ground, building greens, that's that's the easiest part. You know, it's, it's, kind, of, it's kind of all of those, um, those other less glamorous things um, that that are challenging, but yeah, managing people is is probably one of the the hardest things. And you you know you you can only control what what you can control. Obviously, if Mother Nature throws a curveball at you, you just have to to deal with it. But um, 
but those are those are the things that that historically we found most difficult on on construction projects so one of the things that will affect all of y'all out there as a golfer is where's the water going and that's also big in construction I mean we're paying attention all the time we're okay where are we gonna move this water out of here and that has something to do with the grain and everything else that's going on so why don't you talk about that a little bit yeah there's uh, there's a lot of different kind of different concepts regarding moving movement movement of water and how you get rid of it um, there's a lot of architects that like to try and surface flow everything as much as possible. So, you know, minimal sub drainage, minimal catch basins, try to grade the golf course so that the water just sheet flows off of areas to whatever extent possible. There's a lot of golf course architects that they don't shy away from using infrastructure, you know, they'll put a catch basin anywhere, you know, in the middle of a fairway, you know, in a swale off of a green, uh, you know, and then a lot of it has to do with soil conditions, you know, once, once it rains, sure, a certain amount of it is gonna, you know, surface flow, but what happens to the water that goes into the ground and how do you get that out of, you know? So um, there's a lot of different kind of methods that you can employ in terms of, sub drainage and perforated drainage and it just kind of depends on what the site characteristics are like what the soil characteristics if it's a clay site or a sandy site but um, drainage is definitely a uh, uh, a heated topic um, pretty much the only thing people can agree on is that you got to get rid of it somehow <laughs> <laughs> so let's talk about green substructure i mean usga greens uh, I'm sure a lot of people out there don't know what goes into a green construction, and it's it's pretty extensive. That's one of the things that takes the longest on a golf course. So tell them about it. Yeah, so a lot of people are familiar with the terminology of USGA green, which basically is the USGA green section developed guidelines years ago on what the proper method was for constructing and draining a green. So in a nutshell, a USGA specification green is basically a, a green that has a 16 inch depth core. So there's 12 inches of greens mix on the surface. There's a four inch gravel layer. And then underneath the gravel layer, there's perforated drainage, which is usually separated at 10, 12, 15 feet. Um, and there's certain specifications for the particle size distribution of the greens mix, the sand, you know, there has to be certain amount of coarse frat sand particles and medium sand particles and fine sand particles. Um, and there's no doubt a USGA specification green is kind of like the gold standard, but we're seeing a lot of kind of alternate construction methods. Um, you know, whether it's because of the, the budget or maybe it's driven by agronomics, you might have a superintendent that's just comfortable with doing something different. Um, it's kind of interesting. I was talking with a colleague uh, the other day and it's funny how hyper-focused some people get on building a USGA spec green because, so take for instance, like the particle size distribution of your greens mix. In order to be a USGA spec green, 
you have to have less than 5% of very fine sand particles. So it basically means if something is 4.9%, it's within spec. If something is 5.1%, it's out of spec. Well, if you do the math on that, that's, that's 0.002 right. difference. Yet, somehow, if something's out of spec and something's in spec, it means the inspect one is absolutely going to work, and the out of spec one is going to fail ten times out of ten times. Right. So, it's it's really interesting, you know, that yes, there are guidelines. Yes, you should follow them, but you don't have to. They're not necessarily hard and fast. No science to it. You know, they try to make science to it, but. Uh the game is uh, still a game. <laughs> well, it's it's interesting too because uh, at Darmor we're not using a USGA spec sand, um, and that was something that our owner actually chose. He said, "No, I don't. I don't. It doesn't have to be USGA spec. I know what I'm looking for in a sand. I know where the sand comes from. I know what it's going to do ten years from now, and I'm okay with it not necessarily being within specification." Well, that's the business he was in, so he understands it really well, you know. So he's accepting the consequences. If he's not going to be wrong, but anyway. Uh, let's talk about Darmore for a minute. Uh, you know, I was, I knew John O'Donnell, and uh, I had worked with uh, Doug a little bit at Big Ranch when we redid the greens and the bunkers out there. And... I called John and Doug and said, let's go out and look at this property and let's, y'all tell me what you think. And we went out there and, you know, I needed somebody to draw it for me. I, I couldn't draw it. John offered Doug. I didn't know Doug could do that sort of thing. Doug does that sort of thing. So uh, Doug and I worked on the routing plan and uh, it was a great piece of property. And, you know, last week we had Andy Johnson on, and he talked about Cypress Point being one of the uh, his favorite golf courses because it goes into the Monterey Forest and it comes back out of the Monterey Forest into the dunes, and then it faces up to the ocean, and then it goes back to the forest, and then heads back out to the ocean. Well, that's kind of what we do at Boot Ranch, but we—I mean, not at Boot Ranch at Darmore—and you know, it's was mined for sand and gravel. Uh, so it's got all the areas where it was stripped, so it looks very Scottish in many ways. And uh, we go into that to begin with, and we're out of that by the fourth hole. We go down by the river, we come back and go back through the stripped areas, and through 9, 10, and 11, and then we come back out of the open area. But, you know, it creates interest by going in and out. I mean, don't you think that? Absolutely. I think um, it certainly is... I would consider maybe an unorthodox routing. Um, it doesn't have returning nines. Um, it's, uh, but like you said, it kind of moves through the property in a very um, deliberate way. Um, when I look at the property, I always, I always kind of divide it into like three areas. We've got kind of the northwest corner where those man-made dunes are from the mining operation then we've got the pasture area in the center, and then we've got kind of the bluff area overlooking the river. Right. So you're right. You kind of you kind of move in and out of all of those areas. You know, you start off, and right away you're going to get the golfer's attention by playing into and through the dunes on one, two, and three, and then 
four and five kind of traverse the pasture six seven and eight kind of play down and around the bluff and then you go back through the pasture and back into the dunes and then you reverse it and so i think i think people are really gonna really gonna, I, I love the routing yeah. i think i think golfers will really love it too um you know it's one thing i i i i dislike about uh design and and sometimes you just can't do it sometimes every pro every property has its constraints but if you've got one really good section of the property i i hate it when you just go through it really quickly and you don't get back to it at some point um even if you just reserve it for like the last couple holes you know it always kind of feels like you, you see it on all the time on courses where you'll you'll play you know the first 14 holes will be through the woods and then you emerge on the ocean or something and all of a sudden it's you know the, those those holes just outshine the others. Anytime you have a really great you know feature like we have with the dunes or with kind of the rough the, the bluff, it's nice to kind of touch those as many times as you can throughout the round and just keep the golfer interested. So, you know, one of the things that uh, we're going to have an incredible practice facility out there, and I can't wait to get started on that. I was always a practicer, so you know. Uh, that's near and dear to my heart is building a great practice facility. Uh, let's talk about uh, there's several holes out at uh, Darmore where the fourth, ninth, and the twelfth hole are par fives. They all are side by side. The fairways will join at some place on all of them, which will be really unique. There's a lot of bunkering in it. We've got another place where uh, six and thirteen, the fairways combine. Uh, kind of that's Scottish in many ways, <laughs> near near your heart. And uh, you know, th there's features out there. Let's talk about from your standpoint. What do you? What are the features that you like? Well, I think uh, I think as it relates to kind of those combined fairways, um, you know, I. I, I I think one thing that we've achieved is people are going to feel very, they're not going to feel alone when they're playing individual holes. You know, like lots of times you play a golf course and, you know, you might just be in a corridor with trees on all sides. Yeah. I think people are going to feel very connected to the, 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 the property is not going to feel as big as it is right. because you're going to have a lot of holes that, play parallel to each other and they're actually connected with fairways. We're going to have a lot of tea complexes that are essentially, you know, a step away from the previous green. Right. Um, so Which is very old school. Yeah. Yeah. And I think it's, I think it's just going to, it's going to kind of, it kind of adds to that community sense of, of golf. You know, you're not out there playing by yourself. You're going to look over and you're going to see the group and, you know, the, the adjacent fairway or you're going to have time to chit chat when you get to the green because the other group's just going to be hitting off from that tee. They're not a hundred yards away. So I think that's one of the cool features of, of the course. You know, those, those three par fives that traverse the, the property, you know, I think all of them are going to be really strong. It was kind of, we knew going into it, that was going to be a hard area to get through just right. because it's one of the flatter areas of the property. There's not as many natural features. And, you know, to link one side of the property to the other, it was inevitable that 
we had to go through them. We had to, we had to, we had to traverse them, and we had yeah. to try and traverse them as quickly as possible. So they right. kind of just lent themselves to having, you know, some par fives. But you know, they're going to end up being really cool the way it's all done. And you know, let's talk about you know we're following CB McDonald and Seth Rayner's templates out there. You're kind of a connoisseur of that. You know a lot about it, and that's one of the reasons why I was super happy to get you involved. I mean, he, you lived in Scotland for a while, didn't you? I did. I did. I lived in Scotland for six months. I was able to parlay uh, my uh, my college education there for a semester. Um, so I was in Edinburgh for six months, and I... I played, I think, 120 rounds of golf while I was there. Oh, really? So just about every day. But uh, but yeah, I, you know that's one thing that I keep going back to. That that first day that John and I were out there and and we we you know drove around with Todd and Todd explained his affinity for Chicago Golf Club and you started talking about your love of Lynx golf and I piped up. Well, I lived in Scotland for six months and we just started talking. Yeah. And it just, it seemed like this perfect kind of, okay, we've got, we've got an owner that loves golden age architecture, McDonald and Rayner. We both have a passion for Lynx golf. McDonald, you know, borrowed a lot of ideas from the classics Lynx courses. And we were looking for, okay, what would we do to make this golf course different? Well, there's no golf course, you know, with the exception of maybe one or two within a 1500 mile radius that really has a strong collection of template holes. So it was it was kind of just, uh, you know, it happened organically, but it made perfect sense within like just a day or two. It's like, hey, let's do, do it. Let's do it, let's do it, you know. Um, so yeah, and I'm, I'm excited too, because we kind of got, we got a couple of template holes out there that you don't, you don't see all the time, so. Well, you know, as we're doing it, I mean, we're biased, obviously we are biased. It's a great piece of property. Uh, the owner's super passionate about creating something different, and uh, Doug and I are real passionate about creating something different too. Uh, it's fun. We've got a lot of great people working on the project, and Mother Nature, as we talked about earlier, hadn't cooperated the last week or two, but uh, we're dealing with a lot of water, so we're seeing where the water's going <laughs> and where it's not going. <laughs> But uh, we're going to get it all straightened out. Uh, tell me something else you like about, let's talk about slope. Uh, explain to people what is severe on a green. What slope is severe? Uh, I mean, generally speaking, so when you think of like pinnable area, people usually think of it as being, at least nowadays with current green speeds, once something gets above like one and a half percent or so, it's usually not pinnable. Right. So we usually try and design greens with as much kind of one and a half percent. There's obviously a lot of transition zones that get above that. You know, three percent, four percent, five, even six percent is kind of those those moderate slopes. Anything above say six percent, that's usually considered in the realm of severe and you want to try and limit that as much as possible or if you're going to have it you just have to make sure that the green is an appropriate size to match the slopes and as you said green speed has a great deal to do with all of it too so uh you know in my opinion i think grasses have gotten too short i think greens have gotten too fast and uh, 
it put fear in a lot of people. And, you know, I remember in the early 80s, you know, I wasn't fearful of, you know, shots didn't get away from us. You know, now shots get away from you. Things are designed where ball starts getting off the edge of the green is 30 yards off the green, 40 yards, some, t- some places 100 yards off the green, you know. And, you know, you won't see that out at Darmore. I can promise you that. We're not going to have any of that. You know, I, I believe uneven lives create significant problems for most people. Uh, one of the things that I remember the most about playing link-style golf courses in Scotland is, you know, a 20-mile-an-hour wind in my face and I'm on a slight upslope in the fairway and I'm trying to keep it down or I'm right behind it and the little hump is right in front of me and I'm trying to keep a ball down and make and hit it 200 yards you know those things create a challenge Mm -hmm. okay how am I going to play this hole and that's part of golf you know I mean Americans you know we built golf courses that are force carries and we're not using the ground as much as we they use in Scotland and that's one of the things we're trying to do out of Darmore is create a situation where people will use the ground to make the ball. I mean, you know, in 2004 Ryder Cup, this will be funny for y'all, the ninth hole at Oakland Hills, Penn was on the right-hand side, and every American wanted to go right at the flag on the right-hand side. And we decided that I was going to stand on the, on the ninth tee and say, okay, let's not go for the pin. And Americans are so, you know, dialed in that they can't even hardly play away from the pin. And, I mean, that's just a fact. And you are perfect evidence. I mean, you played away from the flag a lot of times in Scotland, right? Uh, Yeah, um, most of the time. Most of the time. Sometimes not on purpose. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) But anyway, long story short, I mean, that's golf. You know, you've got to go over here. Pete Dye did a lot of that. He made you look away from uh, he made you look at a target, and uh, so you know we've talked enough about Darmore. It's going to be a great golf course. There's nothing in Houston like it, and uh, it's a fun project to work on. And most fun I've ever had in my life is whenever I've had the opportunity to uh, be in a design process, and uh, I'm looking forward to more of it. For, uh, for you, Doug, your time in Scotland now, I grew up in Scotland, but maybe back then I didn't have a trained eye for architecture. I still don't really. But what kind of things do you take from Scotland, uh, course design, or just little things that still influence your thoughts on uh, architecture today? I think the, uh, I think the biggest thing is um, kind of the randomness of features over there. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I mean... As you know, it's like the original. I mean, the very first golf courses were just kind of laid laid out at random. I mean, it was yeah. like, okay, let's drop our ball here, and we're going to hit it to over there, and whatever is in between just happens to be in between. Yeah. Um, all of those little kind of, you know, rumples in the fairways and and you know the placements of of the bunkers. Um, there's a very sort of randomness to it. Mm-hmm. You know, um, it's it's evident. You look at an aerial photo of you know, the old course or something, or any of the other Great Links courses. And it's almost like there's no rhyme or reason to it. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's kind of it's kind of interesting that um, this kind of like unintentional design actually lends itself to some of the most interesting mm-hmm. design 
you know so much of what modern architects do is you know it's so deliberate it's like okay mm -hmm. we're gonna here's the landing zone and we're gonna have a bunker that's exactly 240 yards off the tee and then we're gonna have another one that's exactly 280 <laughs> yards off the tee um you know i think what i took from from playing over there was just um try and try and emulate that sort of that sort of randomness into mm -hmm. into golf design and there doesn't have to be a reason for doing everything sometimes yeah. just like oh it's just it's just a natural fit or oh this looks cool or you know what let's just let's just put something here and see how it influences the golfer yeah one of the things we haven't talked about on here which kind of lends itself to the question you just asked when those golf courses were built they didn't have the equipment that we have today yeah so you know they couldn't do what we can do today and then what we can do today with equipment sometimes is too much you know the little bitty you know a sand pro for instance can take away a little mound too much if you're not careful so you know you know one of the goals that I've got for Darmore is is I, I want a lot of that little stuff in there you know we we had this one place the second hole where the second green is going to be and it's got all these little mounds around it and when Doug and I drove through there we just said we'll take the shaper there and say look this is what we want recreate it many different places you know and so you have to be careful when you've got equipment it does a lot of great things but it can also take away some things don't you agree oh yeah I think I think I mean equipment is is one thing but I think just technology in general has has changed the way golf courses are designed and built whether it's equipment agronomics the way that irrigation systems are installed um, it doesn't help that you know Americans have this sort of inflated expectation of what course conditions are supposed to be you know you go overseas and it's it's not uncommon if something's burnt out during the middle of summer. It's just yeah, that right. is what it is, you yeah. know, and that's that's the fun of it. Yeah, you know. But then you come over here, and it doesn't matter whether you're a public golf course or a resort golf course or a private golf course. Everybody is trying to attain this level of, you know, quality. That it, there's a balancing act between what can you achieve with the design, yet at the same time still make it. You can still maintain it. You know, right. and and everybody has this really really high expectation of the maintenance of golf courses, and uh, a lots of times the design of the course suffers because of it. Well, and in my opinion, that hurts the youth of America. I mean, I've said many times to my dad growing up, I, you know, Jack Nicklaus was my idol, and I said, you know, I'm disadvantaged. He grew up at Scioto Country Club, and I grew up at Northwood Country Club, which was a little nine hole. I mean maybe a step above a municipal golf course and I didn't have a good lie all the time and you know but as I've aged I think it, I was advantaged to do that because I didn't expect a good lie all the time I didn't expect to be downwind and have perfect conditions all the time I expected a challenge I expected to be presented with things that were not, not ideal and that's what you're describing right there. And, you know, I think if we could get back to some of that, uh, American golf would be better. And, uh, yeah. what do you No, I, no I agree 100%. Um, 
Um, uh, you know, an analogy I would kind of use is I'm, I'm a skier. I grew up in the Northeast, and we're not exactly known for our snow quality, but we're known for producing a lot of really good racers because they grow up playing, or they grow up skiing on really terrible conditions, right? right? So it's kind of like if you can if you can ski really well on you know the conditions on the snow in the northeast which is usually ice most of the year it's like you can ski anything it's kind of the same thing with golf you know Mm -hmm. if you grow up playing in less than ideal conditions or you you know grow up playing on golf courses that have these uneven lies and i mean that's that's what's going to make you you better um i mean just this past week uh when we were in orlando for the golf show on friday we were able to sneak away and we went and played bay hill which is got tournament coming up right. you know i mean it closes in a week i mean don't get me wrong conditions were phenomenal you know i'm not going to ever complain about the conditions They're probably the best they'll ever be in the entire year but i couldn't help but think man this game is so much easier when you're playing off of you know perfect conditions it's like yeah. you know i wonder the pros are so good they get, <laughs> they, get, they get to play off of this week in and week out well uh <laughs> let me add to that just a little bit you know even though they seem perfect to you, there'll be somebody complaining. Oh, I'm, <laughs> sure, yeah, I'm sure they will. I'm sure you they know, will. I, yeah. that, uh, that used to amaze me. I mean, we had the best of everything on the PGA Tour, but yet some people just, you know. I mean, I, I, I probably hit it in, uh, this would probably be an average. I probably hit it in 10 divots a year. And, you know, I expected to hit it in a divot every now and then. and But... You know, I, because I grew up on something I didn't expect a good lie all the time, yeah. I dealt with it, you know. But there were plenty of people that, you know, yeah. complained big time every time they drove it in a divot. So let's, we're going to venture away from golf course construction for a minute. <laughs> the waste management was last week, mm-hmm. and uh, huge crowds, big money. Uh, what's everybody think about the, you know, Scheffler played great. You, and, you know, uh, he he actually looked like he didn't feel that great about his game on Sunday and still shot 65. So whenever <laughs> whenever you're not playing well and you're still shooting 65, that's, that's, that's impressive. Yeah, he um, got a great short game. You know, made a lot yeah. of putts. Yeah. Started on the second hole making a, you know, 40. I thought it the 49-footer right off the bat, you know. And that always helps every time you make a long putt. It kind of mm-hmm. feel like your day is going to be good. And that, you said back even um, – when you played uh, that event at the start, it was always uh, a rowdy crowd around the 16th hole. Rowdy crowd around 16. You know, I don't know how it got that way to begin with, but uh, they didn't have the stadium aspect of it, yeah. you know. But they had it was everybody was looking for a good time on 16. <laughs> when uh, when you made your hole in one, were they chucking beers on the green at you? They weren't, <laughs> they weren't throwing the beer out on the green, but it was pretty loud and pretty rowdy. Yeah. Uh, you know, 17 there is really a cool hole too. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I, I didn't think Tom Weisskopf got enough credit. Uh, he had, that, that's a good golf course. That's a fun golf course to play. Yeah. And, uh, you know, they didn't talk about him enough. You know, he passed away this last year. I had the pleasure of playing a lot of golf with Tom Weiskopf, and I was always impressed with his golf swing and uh, his knowledge of the game. And you you see that in his influence in architecture. You know, he's he's done some nice golf courses. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. I mean, did you work with him any? 
Uh, I never had the opportunity to. Um, we've done other courses Heritage has uh, with him and with his associate, Phil Smith. We've done a lot of work with, with Phil over the years. Uh, Phil previously worked for Jack Nicholas. Um, so we've got a lot of experience working working with them previously. I never had the opportunity to, to meet Mr. Weisskopf himself. but um. Great guy. I, know, I probably played 30 rounds of golf with him uh, while I was, you know, he was quite a bit senior to me, but uh, I always enjoyed playing with him. Riviera this week. How about that? You got some good memories yeah, from Riviera. I've got some good memories at Riviera. You know, Tiger's playing this week. Mm-hmm. Yep. I always get excited when Tiger plays. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm a Tiger fan. I, you know, I've said this on here many times. He's the only guy that I ever knew that didn't fear the next shot wherever it was going to go. Uh, everybody had a weakness that I ever, ever played with, and you know, we all played into our strengths and away from our weaknesses. You know, it just looked to me like Tiger didn't care where the ball went he knew I mean he had a plan and he was trying to make that plan you know execute that plan but if it went somewhere else I got the shot he said you know Mm -hmm. and he showed us time and time again that he did and uh, that's why he was hard to beat that's why he won so many times Mm -hmm. Uh, so I'm looking forward to watching Riviera and I'm also looking forward to watching Tiger Woods and I hope y'all have a great weekend watching Riviera. Thanks, Doug, for being on today. Thanks for having me. Thanks, Doug. Yeah, yeah, appreciate yeah. it. Coming back on, and uh, we'll see you next time.